eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly, so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Ladies and gentlemen, gentlemen, gentlemen. Hey everybody, this is Richard Deitch and welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. My producers are Patrick Antonetti and Sean Cherry. Today we have uh, three guests, uh, but it's a conversation I think you're really, really going to enjoy. First up is Sean McDonough. Um, if you're a sports media fan, pretty much needs no introduction, but... Uh, he is a broadcaster for ESPN who has done pretty much every major big event uh, from national championships uh, in college football. Uh, he is, of course, on the team right now with Todd Blackledge and Holly Rowe in college football. I would say the best, actually, college football listen right now going. Previous voice on Monday Night Football. He's done World Series, college basketball with uh, Bill Raftery and Jay Bellis, famously. Was the TV play-by-play announcer for the Red Sox from 1988 to 2004. Is also now doing Red Sox games again whenever the season um, the season comes back. So Sean McDonough is first for a great conversation on um, on many things, including um, some pretty transparent comments by Sean about his time in Monday Night Football. You're really going to enjoy that. Um, he has not said this before anywhere else. I am I am sure of that. So Sean McDonough starts off this podcast. He is followed by Kalen Kaler. And Joan Neeson, Kaylin Kaler, is most recently a Sports Illustrated and the Monday Morning Quarterback. She was there for almost five years. Joan Neeson is now a writer for The Guardian and a podcaster for Religion of Sport. She was at Sports Illustrated for six years. And that conversation is about what it is like to be laid off by Sports Illustrated, which Kaylin Kaler was last week, uh, how that process came about, how she's feeling. And then Joan, myself, and Kaylin talk about the future of Sports Illustrated and just the future of getting employment um, in this uh in this time during a uh, pandemic with so many people who are um, struggling right now and um, and out of work looking for jobs. So Sean McDonough first, followed by Kaylin Kaler and Joe Neeson coming up on the Sports Media Podcast. Hey, this is Richard. I wanted to just pop in before we get to our conversations with Sean and Kaylin and Joan. Um, we taped the podcast prior to Grant Wall being fired from Sports Illustrated. Obviously, that would have been a discussion for sure with Joan and Kaylin. So I wanted uh, everybody listening just to know that Grant uh, was a colleague of mine for as long as I was at Sports Illustrated. Um, I consider him a friend as well. And that news is just honestly another chapter in what has just been an awful chapter for Sports Illustrated, who, um, as I've said now many times, just deserved an absolutely better fate than the company that's now running it. But I just want to let you guys know that that's why you won't hear discussion of Grant Wall because we taped before. All right, coming up, a really, really terrific interview with Sean McDonough. All right, as I said at the top in the intro, uh, Sean McDonough, um, 
you know, if you listen to this podcast, I honestly really don't even need to introduce him. Um, you've heard his voice on so many major sports over the years, whether it be um, major college football and college football playoffs, Monday Night Football, obviously, called the World Series, college basketball at the highest levels. And for the people in Boston, of course, they know him as uh, the television play-by-play voice of the Red Sox from uh, the late 80s to the early 2000s. And uh, I am pleased to be joined by Sean McDonough, who is waking up very early for us in Arizona. Sean, welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. Well, it's nice to be back with you, Richard. I'd be happy to get up early to spend a little time chatting with you. Thank you. Sean, uh, just for our listeners, uh, so they get a sense uh, of what it's been like for you, you're in, um, you're in Arizona. How are you spending your time and, and sort of what has life been like for you over the last couple of weeks? I think like most people, you know, a little sad, a little bored, a little scared. And I think if we're all honest, we've probably all experienced each of those things. You know, sad for what's happening in the world. You know, sad for all the suffering that people are dealing with all over the globe. And you know, just to what it's done to our society and our economy and the impact it's having on the lives of people who don't have the virus and probably never will. So you know, I've been doing what a lot of people have been doing, you know, household projects. I've learned how to cook a little bit, which is a shock to my family, I think, and friends. And, uh, you know, projects that we've all put off, fixing closets, and that sort of thing. You know, it's hard because we, uh, we moved into a new house, but, you know, you, you, the things that need to be done, you can't do. You know, you can't have painters in the house or people bringing furniture in or that sort of thing. So even a lot of that stuff that would be good things to do during this hiatus from work uh, have to be put on hold until the world gets healthier, hopefully much sooner than later. Sean, we're taping this in April, uh, second week of April. You're, you know, both of us are fortunate in that, um, you know, we obviously have uh, good jobs. In my case, it could work from home. In your case, you're, you're, you're not necessarily assigned to something right now, but your sort of busy time of the year would certainly be uh, starting in September. And I wonder, understanding that none of us know the answer to this, where does your optimism lie in terms of um, whether you think you'll, you'll be doing what you love to do, which is broadcasting sports in the fall? You know, I guess that's one of the frustrating things, Richard. It's imp- I think it's impossible to know. You know. I'm an optimistic person by nature and want to believe that the world would back to normal enough that they can go play. You know, I saw a poll this morning that 76% of fans said they wouldn't feel comfortable attending games until there was a vaccine found. So I, I think that's jarring to say the least. I think that also implies that people would want to watch games on TV so, yeah, at the September would be my busy time. And I'm sitting here thinking, you know, right now, as you and I are chatting, I would be at the Masters. You know, I was supposed to have hosted the Par 3 competition on the Wednesday of the Masters again this year and would have been at the Final Four just before that. So, you know, I'm sitting here thinking, will there be any Red Sox games? Will there be college football in the fall? And I don't think any of us know yet. I think even the medical experts seem to differ on, you know, what the right approach should be you know, as these – curves, Latin, all these phrases now that we all know so well, uh, does it make sense to you know, ease back into normal life? You know, I just saw something on the news here early this morning that you know, President Trump apparently is talking about 
getting the economy going in May. I think some of the medical people don't think that's why. So I, I think for any of us to sit here and speculate about whether there'll be football or not in September, it's really just a guess. Sean, the, um, uh, the, the public relations person at ESPN for college football, one of them is Derek Volner. It's painful. Pain, it'll be painful me painful uh, for me to admit this, Sean. But Volner is a professional. Does a very good job. So I can't kill him on this podcast. He uh, he did mention to me, and I didn't know this, and I'm glad he did actually. Um, that you were scheduled to do the ACC tournament, or you were in the middle of the ACC tournament when everything got canceled. Can you sort of just take me back to to where you were when that happened? Yeah, I was in Greensboro, North Carolina. You know, I was working. On the Wednesday night, it was uh, the second day, basically, of the ACC tournament. And, you know, we were doing the night session games. And at one point, you know, as they do many times during tournament week, you know, throw it back to the studio for an update. And that's when they came on and said that the Oklahoma City game had been canceled because Rudy Gobert had tested positive for coronavirus. And Dan Dockich and I looked at each other, and I think immediately everybody who heard that said, okay, you know, the world has officially changed in a really scary and dramatic way. And, you know, we had been told that uh, they would probably play the games the next day, but without fans. And, you know, we were done that night. You know, I thought our ESPN production group talked about it, and we all thought, you know, there's no way we're going to be there tomorrow. So when we woke up the next day, uh, the plan was the games were still going to be played. But that morning, a lot of the conferences around the country started canceling their tournaments. And then, you know, just as Florida State, I think Clemson, were getting ready to play at noon Eastern time, uh, they announced that they weren't going to play. And they gave Florida State the ACC regular season championship. So, you know, we all scrambled to find flights home. You know, when uh, that was a little over four weeks ago now as we're chatting. And, um you know, flew back to Phoenix and have basically been in the house ever since. Sean, one of the things I want to ask you, because this really could be a factor for you, is the notion of um, calling games in the in the distant future or not so distant future without crowds. And that would, and so I want to ask you a couple of questions about this because it's sort of a twofold issue. Theoretically, you could either be doing that in in a stadium and arena with no crowds around, but just the broadcast crew, or you could be doing it in some studio setup in Bristol, Connecticut, or ESPN's offices in New York, where you are calling a game off a monitor, however many thousands of miles or hundreds of miles away from the arena. So that's sort of the background of my uh, sort of a couple of questions here for you. One, just as a thought exercise, how do you feel about the prospect of doing games without crowds? Well, you know, it's interesting. We talked about that first night where they made the announcement about Rudy Gobert, and we were talking about the ACC tournament being played the next night with no fans. That's one of the things that I said to our people. You know, it's going to be weird. Are we going to be sitting at courtside while someone's shooting a free throw, wondering if we're talking so loud that we're distracting them? You know, it's uh, not something that we've ever had to deal with before. I should say that Chris Spielman and I many years ago did a college football game on a Friday night at New Mexico State and there wasn't uh, much of a crowd there and we, there, we were, the press box was very low to the really just like the last row of the stands and there were a couple times when we were talking loud after big play that the fans below us turned around and looked at us as if to say like could you guys tone it down a little bit? <laughs> so you know, th- that would have been a weird prospect. You know, I don't think calling games off a monitor, Richard, is a big deal. You know, I call a lot of football off the monitor. 
mean, a lot of these stadiums now we're so far away from the action, and we have these huge monitors that have these modern, beautiful pictures. And a lot of times it's just easier to identify the people uh, off the screen. You know, it's, sometimes it's hard with the geography of where they are on the field because you can't always ascertain quickly off the screen what yard line they're on. You know, I was supposed to be doing the Masters uh, this weekend, ESPN Plus, and you know, we are almost always in towers that are basically enclosed. It's very rare a golf commentator is calling golf looking out the window of his or her tower. You know, you're, you're calling everything off the monitor. I used to joke when we did the British Open, I could do this from my living room. So if that's the way they decide to go, you know, I don't think the quality of the broadcasting would suffer very much. You know, it's the access to the participants that would make it difficult in the preparation. I mean, ordinarily you're meeting with coaches and players and teams before the game, but, you know, there are cell phones too. So if the teams were willing to accommodate you on the phone, as they often are anyway in our experience, especially getting ready for football games, then uh, I don't see any reason why. But, you know, but I think if it gets to the point where it's safe for, you know, baseball players or football players and coaches and, and officials and umpires to go back and do their job on the fields. I don't know why uh, you have to keep the announcers away from the stadium. I mean, if, if those people are all cleared to do it, you know, why, why couldn't we go there too? Sean, do you have any reservations about going to a, a stadium and arena? Um, let's, let's say the travels allowed and let's say, you know, people sort of, um, are in less self-quarantine, but there's no vaccine yet. And public health officials say, you know, in a sense, you are taking a bit of a risk, use, uh, you know, continue to social distance, et cetera, but there's no guarantees or anything. How would you, and again, it's a, it's a hypothetical for sure, but how do you think you would feel about the prospect of traveling somewhere and calling a game in stadium? You know, it's, my guess is that they're not going to go back and play any games unless, you know, they're assured that there is no risk if as much as you can be. I mean, if, if this is still kind of a, a bunch of guesswork and these leagues say, okay, we're going to go back and play with fans and people, you know, the players running into each other, and, uh, the, you know, the, the liability, who wants that, you know, on their conscience or who wants to be responsible for that if we go back into those settings and then the virus gets spread all over the place at sporting events. So, you know, I can't imagine they're going to let any of these things happen until they're as sure as they can be that there isn't a risk. You know, if it's a, a crapshoot, then I, I can't imagine that they're going to ask people to do that. And, and I think we've already seen that. You know, we, when we were at the ACC tournament, Richard, one of the factors was, you know, some of the players were telling their coaches uh, that they didn't want to play. They, and I, I think Duke had already told the ACC, you know, if you play the games today, our team is not coming. And from what Jay Billis reported, you know, there were a couple of other teams that said the same thing. So I think you're going to continue to run into that, you know, unless there's, you know, the certainty is as much certainty as you can have that this is going to be safe to do. I think you're going to have a lot of people who would balk at going back to playing games and, and being at them. Sean, just because I don't know this, and I'm curious, like, do you, are, are, do you have any assignments right now? Like, is there anything that you are scheduled to do, or is literally your schedule open? Well, I was. Uh, you know, as I said, I was supposed to be at the Final Four. and ESPN has the international broadcast rights. As you know, CBS and Turner have the U.S. rights. But Dick Vitale and Jay Billis and I have done the international feed for the last several years, and that's a lot of fun. It's in the, over 200 countries around the world, and uh, – it was supposed to be at the Masters. It was supposed to ESPN, as you know, has uh, the PGA Championship, which was scheduled for May in San Francisco. That's now been moved back to August. I would have been 
a part of our coverage on that. I'm supposed to be doing 40 Red Sox games on their radio network this summer with Joe Castiglione and Will Fleming. I'm really looking forward to that. I went back and did about 30 games last year after having been away from the Red Sox for about 15 years, and it was a lot of fun. You know, obviously there's no way of knowing when that happens. And then obviously my next uh, ESPN assignment would be college football in the fall, which I'm hopeful is going to happen like everybody else. I mean, I think I hear from so many friends of mine, and I'm sure you do too, who (laughs) talk about they don't realize how much sports they watch and how much they appreciate watching sports until there aren't any live sports to watch. And I think all these networks have done a terrific job of airing classic games and putting on marathons and, you know, 30 for 30s are a fun watch, even if you've seen them before. I think everybody's doing the best they can. And I have been the recipient of so many text messages last night. I mean, the, uh, the 1997 Masters was aired and I was uh, working for CBS at the time. I can't tell you how many texts I had from friends of mine saying, I'm watching the 97 Masters. I'm watching the Masters Par 3 from two years ago when Nicholas's grandson made the hole-in-one. I'm watching the 19, Bob Costas uh, called me to tell me he was watching game seven of the 92 NLCS between uh, the Braves and the Pittsburgh Pirates, and it reminds him of what a great classic game it was. And, you know, so there's been an awful lot of that, and it's been fun to watch those things. But you know, I think people are kind of ODing on those things now, too, and would like to see the real thing live yeah. as soon Sid as Bream. possible. Sid Bream. Can I never get enough Sid Bream references? Sid Bream. That was fun to watch. You know, it's. it's I'm not much of a, you know, I don't watch a lot of those classic games, but uh, the one thing for me personally, Richard, that this has done is just reminded me of how lucky I've been to be in a lot of places where exciting things happened in front of me. You know, if you're around long enough, I guess, as I have been now, just by the odds, you're probably going to occasionally have a classic game fall into your lap. But, you know, I've been really fortunate that a number of those sorts of things like the Supreme game have uh, happened while I've been in the booth. Yeah, no, you've, you've had some good ones. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. I want to ask you about Monday Night Football. Uh, And let me sort of just ask an open-ended question here. Looking back on doing Monday Night Football, Sean, how do you feel about your time doing it? Well, it's probably the biggest frustration of my professional life. You know, it was, as you know, we were on some calls together and did some interviews together about it. You know, it was, I was deeply honored to be chosen. You know, obviously, it's one of the iconic sports franchises in the history of television. And you know, given my family's connection to the NFL for a long time, my dad being a legendary sports writer, I hope that I'm allowed to call my dad that. I don't think you'd argue that. And, uh, you know, my brother Terry's worked in the NFL for a long time. You know, just to have had the, the chance to be selected to do it, as I said to you many times, you know, to be the fifth play-by-play person and have the other four be Keith Jackson, Frank Gifford, Al Michaels, and Mike Tirico, uh, just to be included in that company was uh, something I'll never forget and appreciate above. You know, I, I just wish the, the actual two years had gone better. You know, I take my share of the blame for it, but you know, 
I was hired to try to make Monday Night Football more conversational. You know, one of the things that Jay Rothman, the producer, told me when he came here to Scottsdale, we talked about, and they wound up offering me the job was, you know, they wanted to bring out more of John Gruden's personality that you would see in those quarterback camp shows that he did, which I thought were terrific. And, you know, he had a lot of fun uh, with uh, the various quarterbacks who came through his dungeon there in, in Tampa. But, you know, it, it was hard to make that happen. I knew from the very first game we did Pittsburgh at Washington, and there are a couple of times I directed a question out and made a comment that, you know, clearly was intending to elicit a response. And he just kind of looked at me and, and the reality is, you know, he, he didn't want to engage much in conversation. You know, he told me at the beginning he wasn't big into stories, which scared me a little bit because, you know, one of the things that the ESPN people told me they thought was a strength was storytelling, and they wanted more human interest stories about the players. But John really wanted to X and O just about every play. So, you know, I, I felt like what I do well and the, the skills that got me there, you know, uh, for the most part, I wasn't really able to do those things. Um, and, you know, I understand, you know, John Gruden is a much loved figure. You know, he's very popular on the commercials and, you know, whatever they call it, your Q rating is very, he's a character. And I, I understand why you want to gear the broadcast around an analyst. And he was very good at that, at that part of it in particular. Um, but, you know, to me, I just felt like, uh, I was standing there watching a lot of the time when, and I thought there were a lot of great opportunities for things like human interest stories be told, and we, we just didn't have the chance. So, you know, I, I probably would have liked another shot at it if, you know, if they were going to change the analyst. And I, and I don't mean this as criticism of John at all. I mean, we stay in touch, and I consider him a friend. And, you know, people analyzed our personal relationship. And, uh, you know, like, as I said, he's a friend. So uh, I'm, I'm not blaming John. I'm not blaming Jay Rothman. I just don't think the way the thing was set up was necessarily putting me in a position to do what I do well. Now, I wanted to be like it was with the Jay Billis and Bill Rothery. Because to me, that could have been like the old days of Monday Night Football with Howard and Frank and Dandy Don, where you know you're busting each other and you're laughing at what each other says and you're all characters in the crowd. When I was hired, I thought that's what it was going to be, but it, it never became that. So, you know, it was frustrating from that point. You know, with the, the narrative too that well, maybe Monday Night Football was too big for me. You know, you you mentioned the list of all these things I've done. Um, I never felt like, wow, this is, you know, I'm intimidated by this or I'm nervous about this. Or, you know, the, the, you know the, the college football playoff games we do have probably twice as many viewers as Monday Night Football has on a week-to-week basis. So, you know, the people who said that, to me, that's just nonsense when you've done the World Series and the Olympics and every major golf championship and, and that sort of thing. So that's a part of it that bothered me, too. Sorry for the long-winded answer, but uh, wanted to give you a complete and honest answer. So there it is. Yeah, no, I appreciate the honesty and the transparency. And again, I'll ask you a couple of follow-ups and you know answer what you're comfortable answering with. Uh, one of the things that always struck me, Sean, about this was that um, you, one, you were you had you came into a transitional booth, and that Mike Tirico had left, and you come into Monday Night Football. So that in itself is certainly a challenge. You hadn't worked with Gruden before. Uh, you had worked with other analysts before, and incredibly successful. Um, in hindsight, and I understand again, they're still your employer. Um, how do you feel about just only getting two years worth of runway? Because if you talk to broadcasters, um, they will always tell you that that first year is, is all about trying to figure out chemistry on air, off air. You know, it's just rare that 
you get a Tony Romo and Jim Nance, and and it works as good as it does from day one. But the the reality is those two were friends for years prior to working in the booth, and that I think helped their chemistry. So at least for in my opinion, with you and Monday Night Football, I always thought that they sort of just pulled the plug on you too quick. And who knows what would have happened had you gotten a little more runway to do that to do that job. Well. I'm going to agree with that, obviously, and I thought that was going to happen. You know, the conversations, it was really Richard to have a, a perfect storm. You know, and you'll remember the chronology because you do this for a living and chronicle it very well. The, I think it was in December of the second season that I did, you know, toward the end of that year, uh, John Skipper, who was then the president of ESPN, called everybody together to Bristol and gave us sort of a state of the union. There was a lot of negativity, particularly in the press surrounding ESPN at that time, uh, both in the quality or the content of a lot of our presentations on the air and the business part of the company. So he brought everybody together. He and a couple of the other executives got up and gave a talk that I think was very encouraging to us. He said, don't believe all this negativity. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. We're going to do the other thing. Uh, The future is very bright. It's not negative. So I just want you to Go out there and be happy and confident. And I think most of us left there emboldened. You know, I left there feeling particularly good because I saw John on the way out. You know, I lingered for a while afterwards because it was a chance to see people that you don't see very often and, and visit and catch up. So uh, I was among the last people to leave, and I saw John on the way out. And, I, you know, he patted me on the back and said, hey, you're doing a great job, and you just keep doing what you're doing, and blah, blah, blah. I'm like, okay, thanks. So... You know, then a week later, he left. You know, he, he resigned. And then John Gruden, a few days after that, said he was leaving. So, and then, you know, we had the last game we did together was a playoff game at Kansas City. And a couple of our executives were there. And all the, you know, the scuttlebutt, all the feedback I got from them was, you know, we're going to find you a great uh, partner. We want you to be a part of the process. We may even ask you to you know, help us audition people or go visit people. And I thought, great. And I thought, you know, this might be a chance, as you said, Richard, for the reset and, you know, find somebody where maybe there can be more of a balance between football and, and uh, the storytelling and the human parts of it, as we were just talking about. Because I did think it needed that, and I'm not telling tales out of school. I know Stephanie Drewley, who's the vice president in charge of it, said that many times. I want more storytelling. So, you know, that was kind of the feedback and vibe that I was getting. But you know, nobody seemed to know who was really going to make the decisions about what it was going to be going forward, who the new analyst was going to be. It seems like it was, a, you know, they put George Bodenheimer back in charge. and But, you know, he, he, by his own admission, I think he was just there to make sure that, you know, that someone was there in case the, there was a problem that needed to be addressed. But he didn't want to make, you know, the decisions like that. I have the utmost respect for him. I mean, he's, uh, to me, he's a fine a executive as there's ever been in sports television. But uh, so, you know, time passed, and I really wasn't involved much in any of the conversations. And then you, know, you start to hear the whispers that, you know, maybe the plan is to reboot the whole thing. So, you know, that's when I had the conversation with Stephanie and Connor Shell about, uh, you know, if you're thinking about redoing the whole thing. Uh, I love college football. You know, I'd, I'd, I'd go back. Um, I'd like a shot at it maybe with, with, with the new group. Um, but, you know, it's, I don't don't consider it a demotion. If uh, matter of fact, you know, I I, def, I was really missing college football, so I was torn. You know, the ego part wants to stay on Monday Night Football because it's Monday Night Football, and you know, no one wants to be uh, 
sent back, not of their own choosing, but, um, you know, collaboratively we came to the decision to go back. But to me it was pretty obvious by then that they were intending to kind of do a whole new booth anyway. So, again, the long history of it. But, uh, so, yeah, would I have liked a shot at it? Yeah, um, for another year just to see if what you said could have happened. But it might have taken longer than a year with a new person to develop chemistry. You know, sometimes chemistry as you said, happens quickly, but as most of the time, it's, it takes time to develop. But, you know, to me, it was just sort of a perfect storm of events, you know what I mean, with Skipper leaving, Good leaving, and then everybody trying to figure out who's going to make the decision, and, you know, so I don't feel, you know, I'm not complaining about ESPN's treated me exceedingly well. Um, you know, I'm blessed, as I said, to have had the opportunity and blessed to have the life that I have, the people in my life, so uh, you know, it's my, my, as, as we said when we visited before one of my football, I, you know, I've always believed God has a plan for your life. And, uh, you know, I've had a very interesting, winding career, but I um, feel extremely fortunate to be living the life that I'm living. You, um, you end up leaving Monday Night Football, and you land with um, Todd Blackledge and Holly Rowe on what I think is, and I've written this, so uh, certainly not just saying this because you're on the uh, uh, podcast here, what I think is the best college football broadcast team out there. You also, in my opinion, had a great, great team with Chris Spielman when you two worked together. So while, um, you know, I understand sort of the frustration when it comes to Monday Night Football, Sean, one of the sort of positive things, obviously, about your career and even post-Monday Night Football is it does feel like you've landed in a phenomenal spot working with two incredible, incredibly professional people with, uh, with Holly and Todd Blackledge, uh, as well as with a very good production crew behind you. And then outside of the Fowler Herb street team, you, you're essentially calling, you know, the, the biggest games that, that, that you can get, including the college football playoffs. So I wonder if at least in terms of where you are now at ESPN, there has to be some kind of satisfaction, right? From, taking a situation, obviously, that you wished had been better with Monday Night Football, and then heading into a pretty good situation if you just sort of look at it top-down as to where you are. I agree completely. And, you know, again, it goes back to just uh, being grateful for what you have. You know, they, and as I said, the, the, the hard part about the Monday Night Football part was the ego part of it, and that's a terrible part of it to even exist. And you know, once I, you know, for a while I was praying about, oh, don't, no, let me lose my job. It was a Monday football job. And then I, the prayer just became, you know, whatever is your will and where you think is best for me, I'm going to have faith in that. And I do think in many ways college football is better for my skill set because it is a lot more storytelling and humanizing these people. And I don't like doing that part of it. You know, the NFL is more down-to-down football. You know, it's, it really is, which is sort of what we were doing when I was – a part of Monday Night Football. So, and then, as you said, Richard, and you know, because you know the people, and I'm so glad you mentioned not just Todd and Holly, but, you know, Phil Dean is our producer. Scott Johnson is our director. A lot of the people, the technicians on our crew, um, camera guys and tape people have worked with Scott in particular and Phil for 25 or 30 years. I mean, it's a team. It's a family. You know, I felt that when I, when I joined them, and I knew it going into it, and, you know, I wanted to make sure it's the first thing I said in the first production meeting is, hey, I just want to blend in because you guys have a, something really special going here. You know, Todd's great. You mentioned Chris Spielman. 
uh, you know, he's one of my dearest friends. I, we interact just about every day still, whether it's on the phone or texting. And, um, you know, it's just such a, a blessing to, to have worked with him. And, uh, you know, and it's, it's a great thing when you can go to work feeling like you're going to spend the weekend with dear friends. And you know, that's what I have with this college football group now. And uh, it's what I have with Chris. It's certainly what I have with Gillis and Raftery. You know, I still talk to Raff all the time. <laughs> you, know, and, uh, you know, that's, uh, you know, I cherish that experience of having been a part of that three-person booth because I, I don't mean to be immodest, and it's, I had a very small part in it. But uh, you know, I'd I, I put the work that the three of us did together up against uh, just about anything that's been out there. And, you know, you mentioned Chris, Richard, and um, he and I both really appreciated the last year that we worked together. Uh, when you were at Sports Illustrated, you know, you gave us, I think it was the broadcast team of the year in all sports. And, uh, you know, knowing uh, how highly regarded you are and what you do and knowing how many unbelievable broadcast teams there are out there in all the different college and professional sports, uh, that was incredibly meaningful to us. And I, and I hope, you know, how much we appreciate it. We didn't express it at the time. I'm happy to express it now because it meant a lot to us. No, that's, that's nice of you to say, Sean. Uh, and, uh, I mean, who knows, who knows, how, who knows how much I had been drinking the night before, but it, it's out there now. And it's, it's, <laughs> Apparently a lot. If you pick the two of us, it's but, never uh, going away. And by the way, Todd McShay is probably annoyed at you because I'm, I'm not sure if he was included in that at the time. He was our sideline reporter. Thank God. McShay gets enough love and he'll certainly get a lot more here in the coming days with the NFL draft coming up. Yeah. I don't feel bad about that. If I didn't mention McShay, <laughs> um, so let's let me finish up with this, and this is um, uh, I know this is something sort of like very very important to you, and that's uh, you 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 um, you were named by Syracuse University, your alma mater. Um, I don't know if it was last year or this year, as sort of like you know one of the alumni of the year, and it gets me to the larger um, sort of the larger part of uh, larger part of the the idea that like. The, the the amount of people in your profession, broadcasting in particular play-by-play, who have floated through that school um, just remains remarkable, whether it's you or Beth Moens, uh, Mike Tirico, Ian Eagle, Noah Eagle, and, you know, 5,000 other people. And I apologize for not mentioning you all. There's just too many from Syracuse. Uh, you know, Sean, I just sort of want to ask that – even today in 2020, you know, it's not like programs always sort of are guaranteed to produce broadcasters from a singular school, but that place continues to do it. Um, what's your sort of thought as to why Syracuse University, and I'm sp- being specific really to play-by-play bro- broadcasters as opposed to sort of just journalists, but just play-by-play. What, why is it? What, what, what is the reason you think that that school now over three, four-plus decades continues to pr- produce very quality play-by-play people? Well, I think it's because young people who know that this is what they want to do now identify Syracuse as the place they want to go or really think that they have to go. So, you know, and that was the case for me. You know, the, the guy who started it, as you know, was Marty Glickman, uh, you know, who went to Syracuse in the 30s and was a great football player and track athlete, Olympic track athlete, kind of became an accidental broadcaster, became a legend, particularly in the New York area. So, you know, Marv Albert grew up wanting to be Marty Glickman, Marv went to Syracuse, Bob Costas, Dick Stockton went to Syracuse. I watched Marv and Dick Stockton and Bob Costas and thought, well, if they went to Syracuse, I, I should go to Syracuse. That's why I went there. You know, they already had a history, and I'm making that decision in the late 1970s. You know, there was already a, a history of producing the 
some of the best, not, not just sports broadcasters. In fact, when I was making that decision, Ted Koppel was on ABC, you know, Nightline every night. Um, and it, it's just continued. You know, I, the, I get very emotional, as you know, about just about other things. But, you know, with the, when you start winning some of these honors, and, you're, you're, you know, when I was there, you hoped, you know, maybe someday your name will be mentioned in the list when they rattle off Marty Glickman and Marv Albert, Bob Costas, and Dick Stockton. And uh, now to be a, a small part of that list with, with guys like Mike Tirico. You know, we had Tirico the other night uh, arranged a uh, virtual cocktail party, I guess you call it, on Zoom. I think a lot of people are now doing this, and it was for Syracuse broadcasters. We have a, a text chain that runs with about 16 or 17 of us. And, you know, it was the people you mentioned, and uh, you know, Dave O'Brien was on, Dave Pash, I, I don't think joined us, but you know, Dave Ryan was on there, Bill Roth, Tony Carey down in West Virginia was one of my roommates when I was there. Uh, you know, as you mentioned, you could go on and on and on uh, with the list. And, uh, you know, and now there are younger people, and I know you admire greatly, and so do I, Jason Benetti. You know, he's kind of one of the younger guys. Kevin Brown's on ESPN now doing a great job. You mentioned Noah Eagle. He's one year out of college and uh, already having tremendous success. So I think it's going to continue to happen because these kids have so much going for them when they arrive, you know, and Syracuse is able now to be, I don't think I would have gotten into the Newhouse school if I was applying today, you know, the, and I know cause I'm on the, and if I, the alumni advisory board up there, you know, I, I kept up to date on, I know what the standards are and, you know, so they're they're picking kids who are uh, really talented when they come in. Yeah, you know, I've always said a college can help, you know, make you better. They can teach you things. I think one of the most important things when you go to a place like Syracuse, you get so much practical on the air experience that, that that's the best way to get better. But I've said many times, you know, ninety percent of what maybe more of what Mike Tirico or Bob Costas needed to be Mike Tirico and Bob Costas, they were born with. You know, it's. Uh, some of it's just an instinctive, innate talent. So you can't take someone who has not a lot of natural ability to do it and, and coach them up and turn them into a broadcaster. You know, that's just no less than, you know, I could be coached up my whole life and become the shortstop for the Red Sox. You know, it's so, uh, you know, it's, but it's become the mecca, and, it's, and I think it's going to continue probably even at a larger rate of producing sports broadcasters because of the, the quality of the young people uh, that they're getting into Syracuse now. Sean McDonough, as I said at the top, uh, has uh, been part of the soundtrack of many of your major sports over the last couple of decades. You've heard his work, obviously, on college football, Monday Night Football, the World Series, college basketball. He referenced the great uh, Billis Raftery McDonough crew. Um, he was uh play-by-play announcer for the Red Sox from 1988 to 2004 and now returns back uh, to the Red Sox whenever um, – Baseball is there. Um, Sean, listen, man, I, I appreciate you giving me some time, especially because it's very early for you, and uh, and I really enjoyed this conversation. Um, I, I really admire your work, and I think you're a transparent guy, and uh, and uh, that goes a long way, uh, not just with me, but I think people in the business. So thank you very much uh, for joining me today on the Sports Media Podcast, and I have no doubt uh, we'll reconnect in the, in the not-so-distant future. Stay safe, please. I appreciate it, Richard. You know, it's one of the reasons why I enjoy podcasts is you obviously get a chance to talk about things in depth and rather than sound bites. And admire of your work as well. as said appreciative of the nice things that you've written about me and the people I've been blessed to work with. And stay in good health, and we'll look forward to connecting sometime soon. You got it. Thanks so much, Sean. Take care of yourself. 
Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Thank you. Have a great day. All right. uh, My thanks to Sean McDonough for a very interesting conversation now the second part of our podcast. Kaylin Kerr is most recently of Sports Illustrated and the MMQB, where she was a staff writer there. She worked for um, those Sports Illustrated entities for almost five years. Joe Neeson is a writer for The Guardian and now a podcaster for Religion of Sport. She spent uh, nearly six years at Sports Illustrated and has been on this podcast a couple times to first discuss... Uh, her layoff uh, from the Maven slash Sports Illustrated, and then sort of what, uh, you know, we like to check up on her just to sort of see how things are going uh, regarding the sort of sports journalism market. Uh, Kaylin and Joan, welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having us. All right, I'm going to start with you, Kaylin, um, and then we'll eventually bring Joan in here. Um, last week, we're taping this on um, on April 10th, and uh, last week, you um, you were laid off by the Maven, the company that sort of now um, has the editorial control of Sports Illustrated. Uh, how did you find out that you were being laid off? Yeah, so it's kind of funny now looking back because I was, this was a Monday, and I was writing a mock draft that day. Um, it was actually my only mock draft of this draft season, so I was, like, excited to get that out of the way because, you know, that's not my favorite thing to do. Um, and... I was on like pick 25. I had basically written the whole thing. I had it all out. And then I was just doing the descriptions for every pick. And I was on pick 25. It was like 2.30 in the afternoon. So I'd spent like the majority of my day trying to make this mock draft. And then I got a call from uh, Steve Canella, who is one of the co-editors in chief at Sports Illustrated. Um, And I thought it was about a story I had filed like two days before. because it was going to be sort of routed to him to take a look at. Um, And so that's like literally what I thought the call was about. So I was kind of excited. So I'm like, oh, maybe this has, you know, magazine potential. Like maybe that's what we're talking about. Like, that'll be great. Like we can get to the next issue. That'll be so exciting. Um, And then it was definitely not about that. Um, And, you know, to his credit, he was really upset about it. And basically it was just like, you know, because of, the fact that there are no sports right now. Um, SI had lost a ton of sort of advertising revenue is how I understood it. Um, You know, because there's no Olympics and there's no March Madness. So when you're selling those packages, um, you know, which they do a lot of, you know, you'll have like an Olympic package that goes to one sponsor and those are, you know, a lot more lucrative than um, some other things. So they had lost out on, you know, a couple of those March Madness and Olympic related ad revenue. So, you know, they they weren't in a great state. And, you know, I had sort of seen it coming just because of, you know, the state of the economy. And like, I had a friend who was furloughed a couple of days earlier in a totally different industry. But I was thinking like, huh, maybe, you know, this is going to hit media and especially sports media because, you know, there was a lack of sports. But to be honest, I didn't think it would happen to me because 
the NFL is like the rare sport right now that is still kind of proceeding with a business as usual attitude. I mean, the draft is happening on schedule, free agency happened. So we still had a lot to do. Um, and we're kind of like in a normal NFL news cycle for the off season. So for me personally, because I covered the NFL, I didn't really think it was going to come for me or like our little you know, section of NFL writers. So it was a little bit of a surprise because of that. But overall, it wasn't too surprising. Just the timing of it, I think, um, was a little bit jarring. What happens in that situation, Kaylin? What do they tell you? Do they do they give you a certain number of weeks that you have left? Do you have to, are you laid off immediately and you no longer work the next day? What, what, what happened there? Yeah, so I was actually like making a turkey burger like for lunch, like while I, I eat lunch pretty late. So I was like on the phone and like grilling this like turkey burger on the stove. And I just like immediately like turned the stove off, like knowing like this is kind of too shocking for me to like go on and do anything. And I shut my computer. I was like, I am not finishing this mock draft. Like there's there's no I mean, I'm just not going to finish this like at this point. No. Um, but I did ask him. I was like, uh, you know, when am I done? I mean, that's kind of your first question of like, do I keep working or what's going on? Um, and basically that was Monday and my official last day was April 1st. So that was Wednesday, last Wednesday. So it was pretty much immediate. Like it was not, you know, two weeks later or something like that, but I actually have a couple stories that were very close to being finished. Um, so I'm going to be continuing to finish those. And that was sort of built into, you know, my severance, um, to, you know, continue to finish those. Um, because it's weird when you like lay off a journalist, it's not really a clean break, right? Because any journalist, if you ask any journalist out there, you know, nobody has ever just like done with working on things. Like you usually have like five or six different stories that are in various stages of completion. So, you know, when you lay someone off, it's like, oh, I was almost done with this thing. Like now what do we do? Um, so we had to work through some of that stuff, but I have a couple of stories for them that I will be finishing. Um, so I'm done in the fact that I'm not on their staff, but I will be finishing a couple stories in the future. And, you know, obviously you want those stories published and I understand that. So you sort of have to be a little bit diplomatic in answering some of these questions. That said, um, I wonder if you could give both Joan and I, and I'll bring Joan in here after this, just a sense of what it has been like working there over the past couple of years. You know, I have not been in Sports Illustrated now since um, 2018. And I would say even my last couple of years at Sports Illustrated were very, very, I mean, incredibly different than certainly when I started there. And even in the early 2000s, it was became honestly at a certain point like working for a different publication than the one that I had come up in. And that wasn't, um, you know, Time Inc. made a ton of mistakes and certainly SI management made a ton of mistakes, but really the larger corporation kind of put Sports Illustrated on a terrible path that ultimately ended up with uh, Sports Illustrated at Meredith and then Meredith selling um, Sports Illustrated to, in my opinion, some pretty horrible stewards. That's my words. Um, so what has it been like, Kaylin? What has it been like in the last year or so working at that place, the atmosphere, the morale, and, and anything else you want to um, offer us uh, insight about? Yeah, I would say it's been different. Um, so my first three years I worked in the office, I was based in New York. Um, so it was, you know, I 
I was around the office. I was around the gossip and everything and was, you know, pretty much really involved with that environment. And I would say that was like a good environment. It was, um, you know, I mean, the layoffs started sort of when Meredith took over um, or started to be more frequent. So I would say like in the last mm, probably like two or three years, um, you know, that was sort of more of a present worry constantly. Um, so that was a little bit of a change, but ever since then, it's just sort of escalated in that sort of worry about like, are there going to be layoffs coming again? Um, but I will say like, after, after my first two years, I moved to Chicago. So like the last two years I've been in Chicago, so I haven't been in the office, um, aside from visiting periodically every you know few months or so. Um, and I would say like that is, it's sort of kind of like created its own bubble for me where I didn't really, I wasn't really involved in all of the politics or, um, you know, different things going on at the office. So I was kind of able to be removed from that. And it was honestly nice because I could just sort of tunnel vision, like do my job and like, you know, to, to use the words of like Bill Belichick, like just do my job. And, you know, things were going on in the background, um, but it wasn't really, you know, coming at, it, it wasn't really affecting like my daily life because I was just like out doing my thing, you know, talking to my small circle of editors who give me assignments and who I pitch ideas to. Um, but like the larger Maven and larger Meredith and Sports Illustrated it wasn't really like affecting me because I was just out in Chicago, just doing my own thing, reporting my stories, um, doing what I like to do. So it was kind of a nice bubble to be in. Um, but I know for those who worked in the office and were based in New York, it was a lot different um, and much more uh, personal and probably, you know, affected their daily life a lot more than it did for me. Um, but it was the greatest. I mean, I'm still so glad like that I was able to start my career there. I mean, even now I'm like, I'm sending like pitch emails and I'm like, huh, I wonder if people are going to respond to me as much as they did before. Like now that I'm not able to say like, Hey, I'm staff writer at sports illustrated. Um, so I don't know. I'm curious to see like what that, what the change there is, because, you know, I do think the name like still does bring people in and make people respond to you. So I'm, I'm, ex I'm kind of excited to see like, if I notice a difference going forward, but I mean, it was so, it was so great to just grow up in that um, environment and, and that brand and, um, you know, there's still some really amazing editors there and there always have been. And that's something that I'm really going to miss because, I mean, as a young writer, to me, it's so important to have um, an editor who can make my work better and like help me organize stories better. Um, so that was like such a, that was probably my favorite part about working at Sports Illustrated is just the strength of the editing staff and, and making me a better writer. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. All right, Joan, I'm going to bring you in now. Um, and my first question for you is what's just your reaction to what Kaylin had to say? Because you went through this. Um, you've, you've been through this, basically. Yeah. Um, 
I have to say, when when I found out about the layoffs um, last Monday, I was just I was almost just as upset at this round as I had been when it was me. Just I, I think in a sense. You know, there's obviously a lot of you feel bitter, you feel sad, you feel a lot of feelings when you get laid off. But ultimately, similar to what Kaylin just said, you know, I really I loved working at Sports Illustrated. I loved getting to spend six years there for all the reasons that Kaylin just named. And I'm never not going to love that version of Sports Illustrated, the place where I you know, learned a ton that probably wasn't the place that laid me off. It was a very different place than that. But there was always this hope that, well, maybe this will turn around in some way. You know, maybe someone new will buy Sports Illustrated before these guys can lay everyone off. And maybe, you know, it's, it's very pie in the sky. And for me, you know, hearing about the layoffs, it was just another, you know, this is over. This is, you know, the Sports Illustrated as we knew it, as, you know, I loved it growing up reading and the place that hired me in 2013, that place just, you know, really doesn't exist anymore. And hearing, you know, comments of how are we going to put out the magazine, which those comments have been, you know, circulating certainly since October and even before. But it was just really, really upsetting to me to see everything continue down this road. And the fact that what we're two weeks into coronavirus and the Maven guys finances aren't in enough shape to keep people like Kaylin and a lot of, you know, her talented colleagues who whose salaries are frankly fractions of what those executives are making on board. That was very upsetting to me. Joan, what have, uh, as well said, um, what, what has the market been like for you? Uh, once, uh, once you left Sports Illustrated, what did you, what have you found out there? You know, it's, it's been really encouraging. Um, and I, I will say one of my other thoughts after the layoffs last week were, you know, I'm, I'm kind of glad it was me in October and not in the middle of a pandemic because I think it's just a much tougher market now. <laughs> and I feel awful for all of you guys um, in that regard. So I definitely walked into a different market than right now. Um, I was lucky enough to have a fair amount of interest right off the bat and, um, was able to be a little picky, which was really nice, um, and wound up, you know, signing on to work for Religion of Sports, um, which is a video and now podcasting company that's um, doing some really cool things in that space. Um, hasn't really gotten into the podcast space before now, so we're sort of their experiment. And so that came about pretty quickly. Um, I'm working there about 20 hours a week and then spending, you know, the remaining hours uh, freelance writing for um, a variety of places. And yeah, I felt that the market has been really, you know, I think that having Sports Illustrated on your resume helps a ton. That's been incredibly helpful. I, I was kind of laughing internally, Kaylin, when you were talking about just not having the Sports Illustrated in your email pitch, which I found myself sometimes identify when I'm reaching out to sources for, for this podcast, you know, letting them know that I worked at Sports Illustrated for six years. So it still lends some credibility to my name, which is funny in that I, you know, don't work there anymore. But uh but yeah, I think having Sports Illustrated on the resume has been a huge help. And um, I'm trying to, you know, be writing as much as I can um, and, you know, adding writing assignments to my docket as much as possible, which has been, you know, not the easiest thing in the world right now under these economic circumstances, but, you know, not as bad as I would have guessed. That's good news. And I, I, I mean, again, just take it from somebody who uh, who obviously left before you two. Um, uh, I, the, the, the name does carry cachet. Uh, still, uh, and for sure, it's, um, I do find it carries more cachet for people probably over 40 than under 40, but it still does. I mean, it's still, 
at the end of the day, it's very hard for a brand to have that kind of name recognition in the United States and Sports Illustrated still does, regardless of even what you're thinking of it um, today. Kaylin, uh, you heard what Joan said about the market out there. Uh, one big difference, of course, is you're laid off during the middle of a pandemic, during the middle of a recession. Um, and I'm sure that gives you a little bit of sort of anxiety and, and pause. But does what Joan said, I don't know give you a little bit more sort of hope because I, that would be very natural, obviously to sort of feel some anxiety about being, um, you know, being in the market right now. Yeah. So it's interesting. Like the day after I got laid off, um, I actually got a pretty good freelance opportunity from like doing national um, NFL features for um, a national outlet. And I won't say who it is right now because we're still sort of in the midst of working it out, but it was like literally the next day. And I, I was kind of like hesitant to like tweet about it because, you know, it's like so many people just have like pity parties on Twitter. And I was like, you know, I don't want like to be like seeking attention here, but I also knew like if I tweeted about it, then people would know that I'm like looking for a job right now, even though it's the worst time to be looking for a job. Um, so I did tweet about it and I'm glad I did because the, the outlet that reached out to me, um, basically had seen my tweet and they were like, Oh my God, let's do something. So that's a good start. At least it's not, you know, full time by any means, but it's a, it's a good start. And I think it could maybe turn into something more. Um, so that was really uh, a huge blessing and like really took a sting off of it. Um, I think because, you know, I, at first I was like, Oh my gosh, like I'm never going to find anything in this current environment. I'm just going to have to ride out the pandemic. And it's funny because, I don't know if funny is the right word. Maybe it's ironic, but you know, everybody, I feel like everyone in media is just kind of expecting a layoff at some point. And I had so many journalists who like reached out to me and was like, you know, this is a rite of passage. Like, you know, I had, I'd been laid off twice or like, Oh, I've been laid off three times or I had this. And you know, they're all just saying like nice things to sort of make you feel better. Um, but it, I think it certainly is a rite of passage. And it's so basically I say that to say that, you know, you're kind of always thinking at some point I am going to get laid off, but I certainly was not expecting a pandemic to be the spur to that. So that was something I did, could not have predicted. Um, but yeah, I, I was like pleasantly surprised um, with, you know, a freelance opportunity. Um, so that gives me hope that when this is over, there could be, you know, places that are actually hiring full time, um, which would be nice because I'm trying to figure out, I've never been a freelancer, not since like college when I was just doing it um, for fun and for experience. So, um, you know, it's a little tricky to figure out, okay, how do I manage my time? And, um, you know, how do I, how do I manage every assignment and turn things in and like record all the money that's coming in? And yeah, so I, I don't know if I'm going to be very good at that. So I would much prefer to find something full time at some point. Um Joan, let me ask you this, and then Kaylin can follow us. Um, I want to ask you about what you think, what you think the future of Sports Illustrated is. And um, you know, I always have to sort of—it's kind of tricky, and uh, I, at least I find for me. And I wonder if uh, you two will find the same, because you know, there's always a part of me that's a little hesitant to knock the Maven because I, I don't want to. I don't want it to affect the people who are still working there. And there's still a lot of talented people who work there. And obviously people who were my colleagues for many, many years at the same time, if I'm being honest, like I have no faith in the Maven management, like zero, I wouldn't trust them in a million years. And I feel that inevitably this is just a slow and slow and maybe not even as slow as it used to be decline of sports illustrated until it gets ground into 
you know, into whatever sort of hodgepodge it's sort of heading into. Just the name is there, but the the work is not the same. So I, I'm not optimistic by any means, Joan, um, on what the future is. And again, now that you've had a little bit of perspective, you're outside. What do you think the future of Sports Illustrated is? Yeah, I mean, I can't say that I'm encouraged by anything that's gone on in the past in the past year. And I, you know, I think when I first got laid off, I had a hard time. You know, I didn't really want to go to the website a ton because it was almost I missed being there. I missed seeing my name there and getting to you know have the great editors that I had and have my stories um, on you know this website that a lot of people read. But then time passed, and I you know realized that I had a ton of friends who um, still work there and who were doing great work. And so I was, you know, reading their stories and enjoying Sports Illustrated in a sense the past couple of months. And, you know, obviously there wasn't the volume of content that there had been in the past, or I guess quality content. There's certainly a volume of content on that website now. Um, but, uh, you know, in the magazine was, there were fewer, you know, fewer editions of the magazine, but it was still, you know, oh, I'm going to go read the story that, that Kaylin wrote, that Lakin wrote, that, all these people who now no longer work there wrote. And there are still obviously people there who I do read, you know, there's, there's talented people remaining, but fewer and fewer and fewer. And I haven't heard this as much lately in kind of the PR mumbo jumbo that the Maven guys have been putting out there. But for a while it was, you know, we're going to hire, you know, top class journalists and they certainly haven't brought, you know, too many of those on since they took over. I know Pat Forty joins, which um, Pat's a great guy and a phenomenal writer, and it's been fun reading him there. But it's it's they're not adding those people to their roster, and those people aren't going to go work for the Maven because what are they seeing from them? Um, they're seeing layoffs. They're seeing like plagiarized New York Post stories. I mean, I don't know how anything improves from here with um, the way they're going about their business. Um, Certainly the media market isn't great and there aren't, you know, unlimited opportunities. So somebody could see a paycheck and want to go there. But it's I think it's it would take a lot, I would imagine, for um, a well-regarded journalist to want to take that paycheck at this point. Kaylin, you're uh, you know, you're you are closer to this than we are. Um, What do you what do you think of the future of that place right now? Yeah, it's hard to say. Um, I actually and not to like divert from this question, but the monthly magazine, yeah, while there are like so many fewer issues, I actually like love the idea of that. And, you know, if the larger company can stay afloat, I think that's a really actually good change. I don't know if you guys have seen it, but um, I assume both of you have. It's like, you know, it's bigger. It's a different binding. It's I forget the word for it, but it's it's you know it's a thicker magazine. It's bigger. The pages are wider. Like the printing looks a lot better to me. And it's like if you if you page through it, it's kind of like back to back like bangers um, of stories. Um, they're all like bonus stories at this point. And so you know we haven't really seen a monthly sports magazine that's not tied to you know sports events and more of the news cycle so it's a totally different concept um so i have no idea if it will work or not but i personally think the magazine looks great right now um so will it i don't know will it be able to thrive i have no idea like it's above my pay grade but um i do like what they've done with the magazine and you know, as Joan said, there are still some really great reporters and writers there. And um, it's just the question of, is everyone going to be stretched too thin at this point? 
Um, but they did start that daily cover uh, initiative too, which is like Monday through Friday, they're doing like a feature every single day of like classic Sports Illustrated reporting. And I think that has been really good too. And that just started maybe last week or the week before. Um, so there's still some really good stuff still there. It's just a question of, can it survive the pandemic and can it survive going forward? Um, I think I appreciate that answer, Ken. And again, I, yeah, the, the paper stock is, is good. And, you know, there, again, there are still excellent writers there. I, I mean, today I literally just, uh, clicked on, um, Steve Russian doing a piece on Giannis where, uh, I haven't read it yet, but it looks like he may, he may have gone to Greece actually to do it. So that's, you know, I'm sure that's, uh, that's a pretty awesome, uh, read or maybe he went to Milwaukee to do it but regardless um in a way that makes me a little sad in addition to everything else because it there will always be moments where sports like you sort of read something on SI.com or you read something in SI magazine and you kind of like it's a reminder of what used to be or what could be but will never again be so while I'm with Kalen on like there's a lot of cool stuff there it also makes me a little melancholy of like what it could be in the hands of better people. That's just, again, that's, I speak only for me, Joan. Yeah, I think I, I absolutely agree with that. It's there's, there's still so much talent there and so much, you know, loyalty to the brand that can allow for these, you know, guys like Steve Russian to come in and write something like that. And for, you know, people like people to want their name in sports illustrated still and cooperate for one of these, you know, daily cover stories. And there's still potential. I will say the daily cover to me has been a funny thing to see because some of them, the stories are all phenomenal, but to me, it's like a Sports Illustrated cover shouldn't be something that exists every day because there used to be so much thought behind the covers and these wonderful photographs done by, you know, staff photographers for a long time and, you know, a week of thought put into these covers. And now some of them, the artist just like, you know, text slapped over a photograph, which to me, I'm like, that's not a Sports Illustrated cover. That's actually been my take on it, which is I'm thrilled to have the stories, but let's, let's, let's dial back the daily cover situation. Joan, the last thing I want to uh, ask you about is you recently moved to New Orleans, um, which is, uh, I mean, for starters, just a phenomenal American city, maybe the closest city, in my opinion, to Europe that exists in the United States. And I have a great fondness for that city because my uh, my niece lives there, and uh, she's been a paramedic in that city and, uh, and a first responder and significantly involved in... Um, uh, the coronavirus, which has really hit your city hard. And I wonder if you just give me a sense, having moved there not too long ago, like what's it like right now in New Orleans? Yeah, yeah. So I've been down here all winter. Um, my family owns a house down here. My Everyone in my family, except for uh, except for me, went to Tulane. And uh, so it's always been kind of a second home for me. And I decided to spend the winter here before I head back to Chicago um, in a bit. And uh, so, yeah, I've been here for, you know, several months and watched what's gone on. Um, that's amazing about your niece and I hope she's staying safe and you know it's just wonderful to have people like that out there um, in this climate because it has been really bad here and um, you know from my perspective it, it coronavirus is so strange because you know so many of my friends have reached out and said oh New Orleans has hit so hard and I pretty much don't leave my house except for to go for some walks around my neighborhood and so I can't tell. Um, it's not like New York where the population density is such that you're hearing the sirens and, you know, kind of seeing these manifestations of the disease up close and personal out your window. Um, for me, it's just been, you know, empty streets and uh, a lot of working from my backyard instead of a coffee shop. 
Um, but just, you know, hearing the stories of everything that's gone on, um, I'm really proud of how the city's responded. Um, the numbers here are improving. And uh, I think everyone really kind of stepped in line and started following all of these, uh, you know, imposed rules really quickly in a way that I think allowed us to, you know, obviously we were hit very hard in part because of Mardi Gras, in part because there were just thousands of people from all over the country packing our streets before we knew this was the threat that it was. And um, that's no one's fault, potentially, except for if someone should have been warning us. But that's not the fault of anyone who came from Mardi Gras or, you know, attended the celebration that really defines the city. But we were ahead of the curve and had higher numbers because of that. And um, I'm really hoping that things start to turn a corner here soon. And there's been some positive, positive signs of that. But it's weird. I just I I sit in my backyard behind a fence and do my work. And it's it's a bubble in a way that makes me sad that I can't be helping in some way. But there really seems to be no way to besides clicking buttons and donating to food banks and things like that. Yeah, those are those are those help, though. Uh, all right. Let's end with this. Um, Kaylin and Joan, I'll start with you, Kaylin. If you, are you interested in letting people know how they can contact you if they want to uh, hire you as a freelancer or hire you full time? For sure. Um, yeah, my you can email me. Um, my email is my first and last name. Both are hard to spell. So um, spell them. you can. What did you say? I said spell them then. Should I, should I spell it? Okay. Yeah. Um, K-A-L-Y-N-K-A-H-L-E-R at gmail.com. Um, and then, you know, I have a website too, so you can, I'm, I'm in the process, the slow process of trying to update that and make it look more current and good. Um, so you can also send me your feedback on my website if you, uh, if you come across it. You can nice. Google it, it'll come up. Uh, Joan and I will do that. What about you, Joan? Do you have... Uh... Is there? Do you want to give a contact uh, uh, or way for people to or potential employers to contact you? It's up to you. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm always looking for new writing assignments. Um, so, I mean, my DMs on Twitter are open, which you know has only once been a minefield this spring. And um, other than that, you feel free to email me. Uh, my email is also my name, just with a middle initial involved. Uh, so it's Joan M. Neeson at gmail.com. Um, I think my email is like all over the internet also. I'm pretty easy to find. Kaylin Kaler and Joan Neeson, uh, two of my former uh, colleagues who I have uh, immense uh, respect for. You, um, you can find their work if you Google their names. Uh, you can find them on Twitter if you do the same. And, um, you know, again, I have no idea how many people who are in hiring positions are listening to this, but if you are in the business of, um, of sports and that's, you know, regardless of honestly, the topic, they obviously have their, um, they have a lot of experience in NFL with Kalen college uh, sports for Joan, but they can pretty much do anything. Um, I can't recommend those two enough. Uh, I think they're just immensely talented people. So you, uh, you could not do wrong by, uh, by bringing them on. Uh, Kaylin, uh, thank you very much for coming on. It is not easy to come on after you're laid off. There's still severance issues for you. So, uh, I greatly admire you coming on. There are a lot of people who would not have done that. I think as I told Joan before we taped, I'm not sure if the Maven had fired me and I have severance still sort of there if I would be coming on a podcast talking about it. So, I really appreciate your transparency. And Joan, you're like a regular now, basically, on this uh, podcast. You're like my, I'm, if I'm Letterman, you're like my Bill Murray. So I appreciate this, Joan, very much. Um, and I wish, uh, I wish you nothing, uh, you two nothing but the, uh, but the best heading forward. So thank you, Kaylin Kaler, and thank you, Joan Neeson, for joining me today on the Sports Media Podcast. Thanks, Richard. All right, back in the studio. Uh, cannot thank uh, my guests enough. Uh, 
I thought this was a really good podcast. You know, I say that a lot, obviously, but in this case, uh, I'm, I'm putting a little extra on it just because I thought the guests were super honest. Um, Sean McDonough, I appreciate his time and his transparency, and the same with Joe Neeson and Kaylin Kaler. Uh, Joe and Kaylin gave you their emails. Uh, if you're interested in contacting them for work, please do. They're really super talented. Previous podcasts, or the last couple podcasts, um, we, uh, we did um, – Sports television in the age of coronavirus with Ben Strauss of the Washington Post and what the networks are trying to do during this time with no live sports. Before that, Chico Harlan, Rome Bureau Chief of the Washington Post and former Washington Nationals writer, what it is like to cover the coronavirus in Italy right now. Before that, Scott Van Pelt, um, putting on SportsCenter in, this, uh, in the age of COVID-19. He was terrific and uh, really insightful about that. And prior to that, Dr. Celine Gounder and Grant Wall, they are married. Grant Wall, obviously one of the foremost uh, soccer writers in this country. Celine Gounder is a uh, infectious disease specialist. You can see her on CNN. She's got a, one of the biggest podcasts in the country right now on COVID-19 and a pretty brilliant person, basically. So head down the uh, Sports Illustrated, Sports Illustrated, <laughs> no longer Sports Illustrated, uh, knucklehead. Head down the Sports Media with Richard Deitch page and... Um, see uh, some of the podcasts hopefully you'll uh, you'll check them out a lot of them can still be evergreen you can listen to them at any time all right again thank you to everybody at cadence 13 uh from uh, chris corcoran to Shaw, spencer brown to john mcdermott to sean cherry to patrick antonetti this is richard deitch we'll see you again on the sports media podcast I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Planet Premier League podcast. Each week, Cesc Fabregas, Nader Manua and myself talk all things Premier League. As a player, you don't have time to talk. No. You don't have time to make a plan. You just need to deal with wave after wave after wave. We watched Coach Carter and he said, oh, afterwards, the game's just about doing this for your teammates. And I remember looking around halfway through the film and half the squad was asleep. <laughs> Planet Premier League. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.